Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast, where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, and also not that too. I'm Ryan Rogers, and also a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode two, recorded here in the Mercurial Durham region on March 3rd, 2022. The third day of the third month, and in a traditional Ontario spring. It is above freezing yesterday, and well below freezing now. Thanks for joining me today. First off, a continued heartfelt thank you to Chris Oaks of Snail. Check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro is from the song Hummingbird, and our outro is Sacrifice to the Inhuman Creature. We'll start off with some corrections. Uh, First off, Michael Jackson was in fact not left-handed. I had a 50-50 chance on that one, and I got it wrong. The heads on Easter Island were not victims of the Comanche Indians. It was the Comanche helicopter. And the hottest spot in the world is Libya, not standing in line for Edgefest in 2002. Apologies for any and all inconveniences. I'm sorry about that. Moving on, we have some dinosaur news. The Atlas Obscura has reported on two new dinosaurs, including the Brevidentavis, a loon-like pigeon-sized swimmer. Brevidentavis is a name meaning short-toothed bird, and seeing how the skull and teeth are all that are known about it, that's what you would call it. Upon the Field Museum's Jingmeg O'Connor's research, Brevidentavis's unusual jawbone has taken center stage. She believes it could feel with its teeth. Its predentary shows a canal where a nerve would have run the length of its mandible. This wasn't obvious. O'Connor only discovered this after using a CT scan of the bones and then a chemical stain to reveal tissue structure in this little fossil. She's tenacious, as Ian Malcolm would say. This means Brevidentivis would have felt and sensed things through its teeth like that awful sting when you bite into ice cream. Uh, they hypothesized that the dinosaur could have used its sensitive predendary to, to search through the lake bed for prey. Birds do this today, and vestiges of their behavior and anatomy continue to emerge in the fossil record. But more importantly, th- this common trait with modern birds suggests that modern lineages may have, in fact, derived from Brevidentavis's ancestors. Or in other words, this specific bird's lineage doesn't go extinct. How many dinosaur fossils can say that? That's if I'm reading that correctly, I don't know. O'Connor named the second new species in her paper, honoring the first woman to lead uh, China's Institute for Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology, Mimin Chang. The species is Mimenavis, meaning Mimin's bird. Let it be noted also that Mimin was honored in the naming of the Archaeonithura Mimenae, which was named in 2015, in a paper which was also co-authored by O'Connor. In other news, we have Chilisaurus. The genus Chilisaurus gets a species name, honoring the kid who found it. Found by a seven-year-old Diego Suarez in 2004, the strange Chilisaurus Diego Suarez I is intriguing for its unusual features that make it resemble a theropod, a sauropodomorph, and an ornithischian. Chilisaurus's spatula-shaped, elongated, and forward-pointing teeth, its backward-pointing pubic bone, and its shin bone all complicate its cladistic placement in the known dinosaur family tree. What's important about this animal is the questions that it poses. And if those answers ever reveal themselves, this could be a pivotal species in understanding the story of dinosaurs. But why is it newsworthy now? I, I don't know. It was found in 2004, named in 2015. But the article just, I guess, wants it to be known that Chilisaurus Diego Suarez I recognizes the boy who found this strange species. So, read all about it, I guess. 
So moving on to our interview today, please give a warm welcome to my guest this week, Adam Leggett. Uh, fun fact, Adam and I met in the nurse's station at the Wonka Chocolate Factory. We both had complicated run-ins with the Oompa Loompas. Do you remember any of that? No. No? You had the gobstopper? I don't remember Oompa Loompas. Um, you, licked, like <laughs> you licked the wallpaper and the whole deal. Well, anyhow, yeah, but the nurses got us back together and we've, we've stayed in touch, so it's been good. Perfect. Um, so let me start with an open-ended personal question. How much did you like dinosaurs growing up? Not much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's fair enough. Uh, you, were the, you were the dinosaur guy. I, was, uh, I, I wasn't really into dinosaurs until I knew you, and I, I would never be able to hold myself up to what you knew about dinosaurs. So I sort of followed your lead. Okay. Well, I don't recall ever talking about dinosaurs. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. <laughs> I remember you had a red hardcover book. And it was like Dinosaurs A to Z or something like that. And uh, and it had different dinosaurs in it than the books that I had. And I remember yeah. being jealous so bad that it had like Acrocanthosaurus in it. And I just had nothing. I had nothing like that. It had like just lists of dinosaurs. It didn't have all the pictures so much as uh, as my books did. But it had different dinosaurs. And I, I remember being super jealous of that. You remember that one? Nope. It could have been even from my mom's class or something like that. <laughs> you know, she used to bring home a lot of her stuff during the summers. Uh, I don't remember it. Okay. I remember a white book with dinosaurs. It was one of those like science books. You'd get them from, some of them about space, some of them about dinosaurs, some of them about plants. Mm -hmm. I remember one of those, but not a red one. Well, maybe I remember it incorrectly as well. So you, you didn't have a dinosaur phase? Not really, no. I don't know. Yeah, but... it's a good start. <laughs> But, uh, so when did, uh, you have to tell me, I remember when I went to see Jurassic Park for the first time, what, uh, what was it like when you saw the film for the first time? Well, it was definitely cool. I can't remember when I watched it the first time. It was previous to Lost World that you said we saw together. Um, we saw the, the, the third one together. The third one together? Okay. I, I remember oh. dragging you out and you're like, nah, I got this to do and that to do. It's like, no, no, it just came out. We couldn't see it on opening day. We had to wait a couple days. So watching Jurassic Park for the first time, I don't actually recall. I'm doing really well. I don't recall the book. I don't recall the movie. Don't ever remember even liking dinosaurs. But I remember, I do remember it being like a really cool film, just not knowing what to expect at all in it. And I, I, I rewatched it recently with the kids, mm -hmm. and it was brand new to me. It had been so long. Wow. Yeah. It's different seeing it with your kids, eh? So there, how long ago was that? Like a month ago. It's oh. funny, there's been like this big resurgence in Jurassic Park, and I decided I wanted to binge watch the movies, probably, maybe it was on the holiday, maybe it was over the Christmas holiday, and we just sat and watched all three of them. Mm -hmm. And your kids are what, 16 now? Yeah, yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> now, what are they? 11 and 11. 11. 11. Kenzie, Kenzie, Kenzie wasn't so interested, he's 8. Mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, Carter was especially interested in it, he loved it, Owen was sort of on the fence. Okay. So it came out yeah. when, when we were like... 12, 13. 93, 94 or something? Yeah, so oh, that's... The movie was 93. 93? Was yeah. that the book or the movie? What was the movie? The book was 1990. Okay. The movie, yeah. 93. And so I was 12, 12 or 13-ish watching that. It didn't come out on cassette until 94. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, the longest anybody ever waited to watch that movie was that year after it was out of theaters and waiting for that movie to come out. Since then, everybody's been able to watch it whenever they want. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, we just, you know, Netflix, you can go, yeah. 
Interesting. So the kids, they're in that wheelhouse that we were. That's about our age at the time. So yeah. one of them was super into it? Carter was. Yeah. Carter's more into movies and sci-fi and stuff. Uh, Owen seems to not, he seems to be less interested in long stuff, like longer movies and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he's not even that long movie. Just sit, having him sit for an hour and a half, he seems to lose his interest and wants to do something else. Sure. But, well, those yeah, movies weren't Carter especially long. long. Yeah. Pardon me? So they weren't too long. No, no, no. That's like that's what I was saying earlier. I, I felt like they could have been much longer. Yeah. <laughs> Seems like they they, get, they just sort of jump scenes and wrap things up and and whatever. But I think I think they're they're under two hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 They weren't. Uh, they hadn't quite got into the the blockbuster of the the two thousands yet, where everything has no. to be two and a half or three hours, or else you don't even get into the theater for it. <laughs> no, like uh, Carter and I sat through Lord of the Rings and that, I don't know how, but like 16 hours of movie. <laughs> <laughs> I just finished the Lord of the Rings books. It took me like eight, oh, yeah. eight or nine months to yeah. go through them. Uh, yeah. That's for another day, man. <laughs> so you went and found, what, an audio book? Yeah, I went on to Spotify and somebody has read out, um, <laughs> but somebody's done a reading, so... In the car, or last night, I listened to the prologue, and then in the car this morning, I listened to Chap, well, whatever, how he's breaking it out, I'm not sure, but parts one and two of his, pod, his podcast. Interesting. I was really confused with the beginning of that book, because it really reminded me of the Lost World opening scene. Yeah. They're talking about the family, the, the wealthy family driving to this remote beach, and the little girl going off to play, and you know, the little girl runs away, and she runs into this tiny dinosaur, I don't know the names, and she gets attacked by the dinosaur. And I, I recall that's how the other movie started. Yeah. They've kind of sailed or, or you know, they cruised to this island, got off, and the girl ran away and did the same thing. Mm-hmm. So I kind of got a little confused. It's the right book, but it is the right book. Yeah. So the first book, I mean, up into, I still, in like the Jurassic World, four movies later, they're still kind of referencing and taking pieces out of that first book. And I know in the, in the in the first one, so that opening scene, it wasn't like uh, a bunch of snobs on a yacht going into some private island where they stumble across the compies. But it was in the book. Oh. I, you can recall it was a guy who was like on vacation with his wife, and she was like sneaking into Costa Rica for for cheap plastic surgery. <laughs> and uh, right. and then while they're on the beach, they they have the little girl gets nipped, and that's how that whole mystery of well, there's this unusual picture that this girl has drawn, and she testifies this is a yeah. little dinosaur. And, yeah. And uh, that kind and the, of the, the three, the three, feet, the, the three-toed foot, mm-hmm. and the long neck, and the tail, and the whole bit. Yeah. And they totally lifted that bit. So it was so bizarre. Crichton writes a second book for the second movie, and then they go to the beginning of the first book to start the second movie instead of starting the first movie with the first book. It was a little so I, it's crazy. You think the guy wrote a whole new book for you, but yeah, but yeah, yeah. Uh, in the waterfall scene where the Tyrannosaurus's head pulls that guy. In the second movie, oh. through the waterfall, that's in the book. Yeah. In the first book as oh, well. That's in the first book. Yeah, See, and, I haven't got that far yet. And I don't remember the first book. No. So. And there's a yeah. the aviary in the third movie is from the first book. I didn't know that either. So they take a they stop and go through the aviary, and the aviary is closed because the 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 pterosaurs are are too territorial. So, so I just rewatched the opening scene, trying to link it up with the prologue uh, mm-hmm. in the book, and I was trying to think, so it's the jungle scene, all the workers are sitting there all nervous, waiting for the crate to come with the velociraptor in it, mm-hmm. and they're going to load it up into the paddock, and, you know, it goes wrong, and the one guy gets pulled in, and I was starting to wonder, if, is that, like, the scene 
where the injured guy actually gets helicoptered out to in the book. And that's what I, I always know. figured, yeah, it was the it oh, was the it? other side of the story, right? The other side right, that we right. didn't see. And then we catch the uh the helicopter delivering this guy into uh into the the clinic. Which was mm. pretty interesting. Yeah. It's so fascinating that they take bits and pieces, but so much of the movie got rewritten so hard from from what the book actually was that they could right. still take draw material out of that book for three films. Although there was no Spinosaurus. <laughs> I don't know if it's fine. So I have my other monitor open here with references, so I'll, I'll check that out. All right. So you didn't, I mean, to be to prepare for this, amazing for you to, to go and find an audio version to catch up on this. You didn't have to do that, but because you did, you get to have a, a fabulous version of our, our Jurassic Park cast home edition, uh, and you can worry about how you're going to sound in some dark little corner of the internet for the rest of time from the comfort of your own, own home. So congratulations. That's going to be good. worry. <laughs> oh, I was going to say... The end of Jurassic Park 3 is also, so like when the military and the Navy or the Coast Guard or whatever those those organizations were, they all show up and they rescue them off of the island. That's the end of the first book too. At the end of the- I gotta get through this. I gotta get through this, bot, this uh, e-book. Well, not to, spoiler alert, at the end of the book, they, they kind of have finished everything they're gonna do on the island. And then this helicopter just kind of swoops down out of the sky, says, hop on, we already got the kids or whatever, and uh, we're flying out of here before they napalm the island. And isn't, that, isn't the first movie end up with them taking off on a helicopter? Like, well, there's not many ways to take off from the island, but... The first movie, uh, I think it was just Spielberg shrugged, and then they said cut, and they just used CGI to make the rest of it work. <laughs> what are we going to do? Well, it's all, it can't be two hours long. We'll just, uh, we'll end it here. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the thing. Nobody's done a four-hour movie yet. Um, <laughs> well, Dances with Wolves was kind of in there. I don't know. It's about that era. What was the one where Grant was, you know, contemplating everything he knew do a dinosaurs and he had the claw, the claw, the raptor claw, and he's, he tossed it out of the helicopter. Was that the first one? Yeah. I think so. He had the claw and he throws it away when he's up in the tree with the kids. Oh, he's in the tree. That might be Lost World because the brontosauruses are eating out of the tree. That was the first right. one. So they're up in the tree. They they have a little well, moment. The and then uh, Timmy says, like, uh, uh, do you think he saw us? And then he says, what yes. are you going to do now that the dinosaurs are here? And he goes, I... Yeah, it's a strange new world. We'll have to figure that out when we get there. And he throws the claw away. sneezes on Lex. Yeah. <laughs> because it's a kid's movie. <laughs> is it for kids or is it not? Like, <laughs> No, I, I do remember like the dinosaurs being like out of this world. Because I don't know what movie I watched before Jurassic Park, but it didn't have dinosaurs like that. No, they never did. No. And really, no. not since either. Like, yeah. I'm going to talk to somebody soon about Carnosaur. Remember Carnosaur? No. It was more like a rated R um, cloning dinosaur movie. Oh. And it was like scarier and bloodier, but like the puppets were bad. <laughs> no trick photography made them any better. What was really special about Jurassic Park was that they spent the time and the money and they made it just look amazing. Um, oh, yeah. Carnosaur's got that Gremlins thing going on. <laughs> yeah, it was a little. The, the puppets were a little sketchy, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But so the ending of the, I was thinking about the ending of the, the uh, third movie. I was thinking about the ending of the book. And then do you remember, did you ever see the movie Lord of the Flies? Yeah. Well, at the, I read the book, but I think it was required reading when I read it. I it, read it has the same ending where the kids are all about to, I don't know, kill Piggy or maybe Piggy died. They're all going to kill somebody. And then they show up and there's a, a Marine 
or or some officiant that's from the military, and he's standing there, and they burst out onto the beach, and he's just standing there, and he's ready to rescue them, and that's the end of the movie. Mm. And do you know who plays that Marine, or whomever it is? It's Muldoon from the... No way. Yeah, yeah. Muldoon cool. is the, the guy. So I wonder if there's like this subtext of... of um, when when Crichton writes those endings or the movie uses that ending, if there's a Lord of the Flies part to it that should be read into it or not, I don't know. It doesn't come to me naturally. I know in the second book there was this whole premise that the raptors weren't behaving properly because they hadn't been raised by raptors. They kind of were raised without social order, which uh, when you clone something and they're the first of their kind and they, they just appear, they, there's no adults to to socialize them up into how to behave. And so in the second book, there was this whole conversation that these raptors may not be behaving authentically because no, there were no other raptors to teach them how to be raptors. Mm. And so I don't know if there's a Lord of the Flies bend to this or not. It's obviously not apparent, but I wonder if there's something to be taken for that. Like Especially because <laughs> well, that's the end of the first book and the end of the third movie, and the second movie has nothing to do with that. Uh, but the second book kind of does. <laughs> I mean, maybe there's just things for us to talk about later and they have nothing sure, to do, yeah. do with the book. But, I'm, um, I'm going to be studying, Ryan. Don't you worry. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, do, I'll do some more with you. <laughs> so I know that we, we dug around and found uh, together. You know, I, after a while, we're interested in more Michael Crichton stuff. Um, and I think we shared books and things like, like Airframe, I think, whatever that busted up copy. You let me Airframe. I think you told me you found an Airframe in a doctor's office or something like that. <laughs> Maybe. And you lent, you lent it to me. I'm thinking, ah, no, this thing, this sounds a little dry. Like, it's not like your typical sci-fi type thing. It wasn't. And it was actually really good. It was. I remember being good. Yeah. yeah. And that book was held together with, like, elastics. <laughs> I still that... have your copy of Airframe. The doctor's copy. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might have Airframe here. I, I have about six or seven, or maybe not six or seven dollars. I'm missing everything but Jurassic Park. Or missing nothing but Jurassic Park and uh, and uh, Lost World, which is odd. This might say more about me than anybody else, but I remember scrounging all over the place looking for Crichton books, but we never checked the library. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I never rented, yeah, borrowed yeah. one from the library, but I remember we found them all eventually. Um, if you were to, eat... like, where did you have to go? Like a, a pharmacy? Like um... who knows? I guess you'd have to. So my um, timeline would have been new. Prey would have been new, but I don't know where we found Andromeda Strain. I think I might have had a new copy. I might have had to buy copies of. I might have bought them all from Amazon or Chapters or something like that. Amazon wouldn't have been in the bookstore at the time was still. There was there Amazon? Wasn't that the name? So of... I bought, I bought like Spear and Congo and uh, Eat Just the Dead and and uh, Andromeda Strain. Like I don't, I don't, I had no online anything. Mm -hmm. No, that's right. Oh. I thought Amazon was the name of the bookstore once upon a time. Oh, maybe there was. A, I don't know. Maybe there was an outlet or something. I don't remember. I, there must have been like. I guess it was Coles. Was Coles? Coles and Chapters we would go to. Coles. Yeah, I guess it was chapters around, I guess, so I don't know. Every yeah, two years, yeah. they had a new redemption points card or something like that. You're like, come on, what's going on here? Now, now whenever I need a book, I just jump online, hit add the cart, and it's in, at my door in 24 hours. Yeah. <laughs> so which which of the other books did you do you remember liking the best? I think uh, I think Sphere. You like Sphere the best? Yeah. Sphere was pretty sweet. It's just because I've always been interested in space, so I think my youthful thing was space, but... Sphere and, and space linked well together with me. 
Mm-hmm. But you had Congo on the tip of your tongue too. Uh, Congo was there. <laughs> Congo was really good too. Again, books. I don't know how far off Jurassic Park we're getting right now. But, um, the books were like a thousand times better mm-hmm. than the movie. In every case, pretty well. I don't know what the art for ad- making it ad- adaptation is, but it seems to be very hard because the books were always good. The films were not B movies. It's not like the dialogue was bad. It's not like the you could see the boom mic or something like that in the shots. And it's not like they were uh, you know ridiculous or they're terrible special effects or bad actors. They had Sharon Stone, Dustin Hoffman, Samuel Jackson, uh-huh. uh, Sean uh-huh. Connery was in these movies, Wesley Snipes, and, but it, they were no good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's got to be something, some part of adapting a, a novel into a script where, I don't know, you trim back all the, the extra awesomeness and just boil it down to one person's character arc that's meaningful and rewarding. Yeah, well, it must be hard. Cause... I think it's a lot of every, everybody's individual imagination probably. You're, yeah. You're probably experiencing it differently as you're reading it than mm-hmm. you're being showed it. Sure. That's a good point. That's a good point. And, then, and, and, and shout out to Vince Vaughn. I was blown away watching The Lost World and Vince Vaughn shows up with camera stuff. Uh, <laughs> what the heck was that? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And Sarah Harding was played by Julianne Moore, who yeah. has gone on to be much more highly regarded than Lost World fame, anyhow. Yeah. You'd be surprised <laughs> to remember she was even in that. I'm looking at the Michael Douglas and Demi Moore were in Disclosure in '94. And that's, that's why I never saw or got read. Well, that was that was a racy one, I'll tell you. <laughs> but uh, Michael Douglas, Demi Moore in '94. That's like right in their right in their wheelhouse too. I don't think you're going to get any A-listers in Andromeda Strain. <laughs> that, that was pretty old, yeah. Uh, <laughs> do you remember Andromeda Strain? What do you remember about that movie? Again, it fits in my wheelhouse. I think I did, I don't know if I discovered. Must have been. I must have been trying to pursue Crichton books. But I've always liked this post-apocalyptic type end-of-the-world theme, like, you know, mm-hmm. the stand and all that stuff. So, Drama Strain fit with me. I just remember, I don't, again, the recall is terrible. I just remember it being really cool, and I've always always liked the build-up of those movies when people have just, you know, things have just ended, and you're starting to see people, like, branching out and exploring the world and figuring out, oh my god, I'm alone. Yeah. That kind of stuff. Yeah. But that's what I remember from it. I remember being in like Arizona or desert. Yeah. And I don't, I, but I don't know the full plot and I don't know how it ended. So I'm probably going to have to revisit that one if I can find that. <laughs> yeah, where do you look for that? <laughs> you're telling me with Jurassic Park, you're, you when you watched it again, that because it was kind of I fresh know. for the first time, that a lot of, a lot of things stuck out that maybe you hadn't noticed before. <laughs> and you're mentioning the cup. Why don't you tell yeah. us about what you thought about the cups? <laughs> I just felt it was odd to have an open cup of water in the in the Jeep, and these Jeeps are just sort of driving around, and just, just an open cup. It's like they just need it there to to show that, you know, crap's going to hit the fan. Yeah. I don't know why there's not a bottle. You mentioned canteen. You also mentioned that it was used as an example of, of water running off of Ellie's hand. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's not. This isn't an airplane. You don't get a, a glass of water a in a car. It's so bizarre. And then, yeah, he he uses it to demonstrate chaos theory and initial conditions and imperfections right. in the skin. And then, and then it's uh, that terrific scene where you, you see the the ripples, which is just well, it's amazing. Just, it's just like, 
And Malcolm's like, oh, yeah, I need an example. Perfect. I got the open cup of water. Let me dip my finger in. But yeah, why wouldn't you have a water bottle? And so one car's got water, and the other one, yeah, Grant's got his canteen out the window catching rainwater. They don't have water at all, but the other one's got open glasses. That's so That's bizarre. One of things, too, are all these little, like, things are written in. Like, Grant's got the canteen because he's the, he's the avid adventure paleontologist that's roughing it, and he's used to the wilderness. So he's, he's just going to get his water from the rain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He's not going to bother with the open cup. Don't give me none of that bottled water. <laughs> My day, we had water from the sky. I, I like those sort of like subtle things. Yeah, yeah. That but that that whole movie's full yeah, of it. Yeah. Sam Neill, all those guys. They do so many extra little bits in the background yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, to yeah. to bring their characters to life that don't even have a. Uh, they're not in the script. I don't think like there's no words attached to them, is or dialogue anyhow. Oh. They do amazing I think most work. Of that stuff makes movies for the yeah. most part. It's those subtle things for sure. Yeah. Everybody was so good in that movie. But uh, you make an interesting point that, that uh, the rippling water stuck out to you because, like, what do you mean you have a cup of water? But when I thought about the scene, I was like, you know what? That was one scene, and from it, we get the rippling water. You get that Tyrannosaurus foot stepping into the mud. You get the dilating pupil in the car window. You get the lawyer getting eaten. You get Grant waving the road flare, and you get the nostrils flaring the hat off of his head. All in one oh, scene. Yeah. One scene in all of those iconic moments happen. And that's just, like, what movie has one... Now, it was like eight or nine minutes long. But that's, that's something to say. One scene. And it has that many highlights. Not just one or something like that. It wasn't just like Hannibal Lecter sucking his lips after saying fava beans. <laughs> right? It was... There was just this mountain of, of extraordinary yeah. material in one moment. And uh, it's, it's just incredible. Part of the movie, it's like we're not seeing dinosaurs at all on this trip. This is lame. <laughs> yeah. And, and all of a sudden, it's like, well, here they are, right? That's right. It does a one eighty pretty quick. It was so cool. Uh, my, I think out of all that, I, I did, I did lend some criticisms, but whatever. And I can see uh, you being hung up, one... like, oh, no, 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 kids, this is stupid. There's a glass of water. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite part of that scene is the flare yeah. waving scene. I think for sure. It's just, it's dark, it's raining, storm, he's out there, he's this little guy, mm-hmm. his light, and uh, his flare, and there's this massive dinosaur just like looking at him going like, yeah, what do you want from me? And he's uh, got it under control. The, the, yeah. the awesome part is he's got it under control, and then the other guy tries to be a hero. And, he told the lawyer. And he's not ready at all, yeah. Me, I, I got this too, I got this flash, and he looked at me, and, and that was the end of him. <laughs> yeah. So many neat things. What a cool, cool scene. Absolutely the best. It was. It was definitely good. Um, yeah. From, yeah. From the very start when uh, they're sitting there in the powers, out and they're just, and I still like Malcolm trying to pick up Ellie, and Grant's like, yeah, she's taken, man. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it just sort of starts so calm and like, wow, we're stuck. Nothing going on. This is a waste of time. To, to just everything, like you said. Malcolm. Yeah, then it goes crazy. And I like, yeah. what I love about how that movie was is that you didn't have a lot of jump scares. You didn't, I mean, there were some, but things, the the shots lingered on the claws. The shots lingered on the teeth. It, the shots lingered on the people and, and it, it, did, it didn't yeah, I, flash. Yeah, but yeah. now you get things that move so quickly, you don't even know what's going on. Like, yeah. if you sit too close to the screen at a Michael Bay movie, you, it's just a blur. <laughs> right? Yeah. But they, 
it was Spielberg in that one took his time and, and that was maybe part of the suspense building, like what is going to happen next? And you have to wait and he makes you wait for it by taking the shots and letting them sit and giving them moments to breathe that raised the suspense and the horror um, because, I mean, the consequences were, were pretty serious. <laughs> Are we going to see a guy get eaten here or not? Um, just amazing. And and you don't get that in the new ones where things just move to, so fast and the camera's kind of got to be like swirling around. Like whose perspective is swirling around <laughs> when you're watching it? I, don't... I, I also like so many attention to details, which I mentioned before, when, you know, after that scene, the car is flung off into the edge, gets into the tree. And I don't know why this stuck out in my mind of most things going on when they're trying to get Tim out of the grants, trying to get Tim out of the tree. But when he grabs the steering wheel, just, you know, you're, it's, it's, I'm going to brace myself. I'm it's a handle, yeah. That was, was neat. But um, the steering wheel turned and moved the tire, and that's what causes the, the, the car to fall out of the tree. I don't, those little things, again, I don't know why I seem to focus on them. I do. <laughs> it's hard not to see them sometimes now that you look back. Did you find watching it as a father that you read some of the scenes differently than when you saw it, obviously, as like a preteen? Was there no. any moments where you're like, wow, that's significantly, it just hit you a different way? I think if I remembered watching it the first time, <laughs> I, I, would, I would be able to make that, that relationship. But uh, no, it, but it, like I said, it felt like a brand new movie to me and it was cool. And I still felt, you know, 20 some odd years later, it held, it held up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And that's neat. The, the second and third movies weren't as strong. Mm -hmm. But that first one still, to me, really held up. Mm -hmm. Like Grant, like, you know, there's those those light moments when Tim gets fried on the fence. Mm -hmm. But Grant's like, ah! Yeah. Like, ah, jokes, let's climb up this thing. And then they're going down and the light's coming up. <laughs> yeah. Or I guess one of the flaws might be like when they were doing the, trying to, you know, get through the, the catacombs of the place and get the power back on. And they're in that pipe room. And Ellie's got to turn on the power, but the, the raptors are like chilling behind the pipes. Yeah. And they bend the pipes and scare out. Like, How did you guys get in there? What are you doing there? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's just for the fun. That's for the entertainment. Yeah. There's I a couple of able to hold back some raptors with that, you know, pretty weak chain link fence door to the power room. Mm -hmm. But like, even the whole thing where they, they find the egg, like, what did they yeah. get out of the pen and lay an egg somewhere? And, Therefore, right. one of the they said there were six raptors. So therefore, one of them is a male. Or like, where, where did the where is this male raptor that or female raptor? Like, who laid the egg? And it's not like there was more raptors in the park. It's not like there was more trouble or anything. They just it was. Oh my God, they're breeding. Well, that's a thing that happened in the book that's now here. Okay, let's get out of the island. <laughs> my my feelings on this the, those beginning scenes when they're saying, "Hey, they're all female. We got this under control." Mm -hmm. It's just. This, give the audience a sense that it is under control. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, we've done our research. We got this. Yeah. We got, it's it's going to be safe. It's perfectly it's so safe, cool. yeah. <laughs> I think that there's a backstory that needs to happen. Uh, when we're talking about like things that were in the first book that still uh, manifest in the in the subsequent movies, there needs to be a backstory. So like from that scene, oh, they're all girls. We engineered them that way. And then Dr. Wu says, are you somehow implying that a, a population made entirely of females is going to and he tips his head, breed? 
That's the last time we see Doctor Wu until Jurassic <laughs> World. And there must be something where like the helicopter flies away, leaves him on the island <laughs> all by himself, and he needs to like fight for his life and fight off all these breeding dinosaurs that we don't see or hear anything about in the movie. And then he comes back and he's like, That's it. I'm gonna make an Indominus Rex. <laughs> but it has to be this transformation from that guy who just was doing his job. He looked like he was going to sip some chamomile tea afterwards to turning into like this, you know, <laughs> villainous, deep-throated, beady Wong type. That I was like, oh, I can't wait. To... There's a backstory there that I think needs to be needs to be shared with the rest of he us. He went through some stuff between scene A and scene B. Why are you guys over on site B? I'm on site A still. <laughs> Get me out of here. Right, right. So did you, did you have fun? Visiting on on a podcast for the first time in your life? Yeah, first time. I listened to a lot. Never helped you with one or anyone. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you think you'd ever come back and do this again? Oh yeah, I want to keep up with it. All it's right. fun to do and connect with you and all that. So I'll try and keep my pessimism in glass half full. Um, one of these. I hope one of these days I'll have somebody come on and say, "I hate you. I hate the movie. I hate the book." <laughs> and here's why. And I, I'm here for it. I I, <laughs> I don't. Well, I, it's crazy. Yeah. But, uh, oh, I'm gonna listen to the. Um, I'll keep up on the audio book because I think it's worth doing it anyway. Mm-hmm. Even if you don't call on me again, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll call you again. I'll call you again. <laughs> of course, I'm gonna have Leggett back. I've got all day for Leggett. That's awesome. So thanks to him for for being a part of this crazy experiment of mine. So let's get into our chapter for today: prologue, the bite of the raptor, spanning from pages one to page seven. A bit of a synopsis here. Our point of view character for this chapter is Dr. Bobby Carter, who is shocked when a helicopter arrives through a horrible storm carrying a fatally wounded construction worker. She's lied to about the injury, told that it's a construction accident when it's clearly a mauling, and then the injured worker speaks raptor before vomiting blood and spasming on the floor to his death. Then the body and all evidence of the injury are whisked away by the engine construction Sikorsky and they're gone forever. The word raptor makes the not usually superstitious Costa Rican AIDS at the clinic extraordinarily superstitious because it reminds them of the hupia, a vampiric spirit that kidnaps newborns. Carter looks up the word in her dictionary and sees that it means bird of prey. So what characters do we meet in this first little chapter? Uh, We have Dr. Roberta Carter. Dr. Roberta Bobby Carter is a visiting physician who's been in Costa Rica for three weeks into her two-month residency after two grueling years at Michael Reese in Chicago. She's expected Costa Rica to be more of a vacation, and she's wearing a tank top and cut-off jeans with a rusty stethoscope around her neck. She can spot that the injuries are, are not from a construction accident, but instead resemble an animal attack. And she wonders why this Ed Regis character appears like he's lying, because having a fatally wounded worker must happen all the time? We have Manuel Aragon, Manuel is an intelligent and well-trained Costa Rican paramedic. He is petrified at the word raptor, at the scent of the wounds and the word raptor. He crosses himself and refuses to help the injured worker. He's well-versed in the mythos of the hupia, and he stops Carter from performing mouth-to-mouth for fear that the hupia will cross over. We have InGen Construction. There's a pilot and two Spanish-speaking uniformed black men in the helicopter. There's the injured worker. The limp body of an 18-year-old injured male construction worker. He has a slashing rip along his shoulder and another on his leg. He's pale, shivering, unconscious. 
Upon Bobby's immediate inspection, she believes he'll almost certainly die. The edge of his wound, the flesh was shredded, the shoulder dislocated, pale bones are exposed, a second slash through the heavy muscles of the thigh, deep enough to reveal the pulse of the femoral artery. The injury has a strange odor, a kind of rotten stench, the smell of death and decay, and unlike anything that Dr. Carter had smelled before. The construction worker was injured, quote, an hour ago, uh, short slashing cuts on both palms, bruises on the wrists and forearms are telltale signs of a mauling, and he utters raptor with his dying breath. He dies in a spastic fit of vomiting blood and convulsions on page five. We meet Ed Regis. Ed Regis, a red-haired white man in a yellow slicker and Mets baseball cap, barking orders. He's a liar, hiding the truth, escaping responsibility. When he lies, he licks his lips as he speaks. He's edgy, acting like he's done something wrong. He's the tense, eager, and nervous type, according to Carter. He looks like an executive, not a construction foreman. He and the workers take the construction worker's body away with them, on page 5, and he steals Carter's camera and all evidence of the attack with him. We meet Elena Morales. Elena Morales works at the Bahia Anasco Clinic as a local midwife. She's a gray-haired 60-year-old strong woman with a practical no-nonsense air. She knows that a raptor is, quote, a person who comes in the night and takes away a child or a kidnapper. Upon saying hoopia, though, Morales stops Carter and tells her to drop that line of inquiry with a pregnant woman expecting a baby by the end of the night. She feels that's inappropriate. We have an expecting mother. Uh, she's expecting to give birth to a baby at the Bahia Nasco Clinic with Elena Morales as her midwife and Dr. Carter as her doctor. We have a few localities to discuss. We have Bahia Nasco. That's a Costa Rican fictional, isolated, remote, friendly coastal fishing village on the west coast of Costa Rica where it rains daily this time of year. Uh, and I believe it's Spanish for Anasco Bay. Uh, we have the clinic. The clinic is well-maintained, amply supplied, and provides a level of medicine equal to Michael Reese in Chicago. There's a rickety wooden dock and fishing boats in the Pacific Ocean beyond the thick fog. It has a green door, and other patients, like a mother about to have a baby, are inside the clinic. Michael Reese in Chicago. Uh, Michael Reese Hospital and Medical Center was an American hospital located in the Bronzeville neighborhood of Chicago, Illinois. It was founded in 1881 and closed in 2009. And it was a major research and teaching hospital and one of the oldest and largest hospitals in the city. When they reference Michael Reese, uh, this is what they're talking about. And there's a mysterious new resort that is being mentioned. Some, quote, new resort said to be spectacular and very complicated, employing many locals in the construction, going on for more than two years. Probably a huge American resort with swimming pools, tennis courts, with no connection to Costa Rica. An hour's flight from Bahia, Nasco, it's about 100 or 120 miles offshore. I've read that Sikorsky's can fly 299 miles an hour, and that record was achieved in 2010, so perhaps they weren't quite that fast at that time, but they can certainly make it 120 miles within the hour, so that's that holds up. Some stylistic techniques that were used. Specifically, Crichton, I mean, he doesn't do a lot of imaginative stuff, but here we have him using italics. He goes, no, listen, in italics, uh, using italics for emphasis, which is kind of what they're traditionally used for. Uh, they can't be flying in weather like this, is a statement in italics that uh, heads disbelief or surprise and shock. Raptor, says the injured worker. Losa raptor. Again, uh, shows a foreign language. It adds, again, more emphasis, saying, hey, pay attention to what's being said here. Hoopia, 
<laughs> is italicized by Morales. Uh, the emphasis implies distinction and surprise. The injured worker is meaningfully trying to name his assailant. So there's a consistent use of italics, which is good. Crichton also replicates a dictionary entry in a sentence, beginning with a bold font for the entry raptor, the forward slash and the abbreviations N for noun, and then square brackets to contain the etymology of the word. Then abbreviations are used. Deriv uh, is short for der derivation, L for Latin, and FR for from, raptus. Uh, the Latin words are italicized to indicate that they are in English, and then we get a, a plain definition after a colon, bird of prey. In terms of stylistic techniques, we have a lot of elements of, of, a, of a, a horror story being built here. The, quote, not especially superstitious Costa Ricans are extraordinarily superstitious of the hoopia, or a raptor, so much that a dedicated medical practitioner rejects any Hippocratic oath taking to let someone die of their injuries on page five. God-fearing Costa Ricans cower at the thought of a hoopia, which apparently thrashes their victims. The bad smell is, quote, not normal, further terrifying Manuel Aragon. Upon mentioning the Hoopia legend, the victim pitches forward, explosively vomits blood and drops into convulsions before vomiting again and dying. Dr. Carter aims to help the boy, but Aragon stops her, insisting, you do not understand these things. Carter's research reveals that, quote, raptor is Spanish for ravisher or abductor on page six. She believes the boy was trying to tell her something. He said raptor. She looks up raptor in English dictionary and finds that it's a Latin word, plunderer or bird of prey. Elena Morales also cautions against the superstitious idea of mentioning a hoopia or a raptor when a woman is about to give birth at the clinic. She describes a hoopia as a man who comes in the night and kidnaps babies. This plays on the old lyrical and superstitious tradition of, quote, speak of the devil and he will come. So it's best not to speak of the devil. Why tempt fate or karma or whatever superstition that ideology is founded in? Is Jurassic Park built on the same superstitious premise? If you keep asking about safety issues, you're going to find safety issues, so quit asking. That's a joke. Uh, mystery building, foreign or alien mythology of the Hoopia, a vampiric demon in Taino culture, which is an indigenous Caribbean culture, is being presented here. Carter feels 120 miles offshore is, quote, pretty far for a resort on, on page six, which sort of serves as a rhetorical device asking, what must they be hiding way out there? And her camera is stolen, further suggesting that they're keeping a secret or hiding the truth. And given that a boy just died, it's dangerous. The conclusions Carter and we readers should arrive at is this. This hoopia-like raptor that attacked this construction worker is being hidden on a remote island by InGen. But what is it? We have some literary techniques, like metaphors. Uh, the rain falls in, quote, drenching sheets, hammering the roof, and, quote, roaring down on page one. The... We have the, the bay is cloaked in a low fog, and a rumble that built and emerged until it was clear uh, is uh, used to describe the helicopter. And the helicopter itself is called a big-bellied Sikorsky. And all of these are kind of giving uh, character and action to inanimate objects. So it's interesting. Um, pathetic fallacy, when weather reflects a mood or is imbued with human characteristics, is employed a little bit, not, not distinctly. Uh, the rain falls in heavy drops, pounding... Uh, Carter's head and shoulders, which I guess it can do, but it, again, it's given some animation. Uh, suspense. Rhetorical questions add suspense, offering higher stakes than perhaps are likely by making us worry about other scenarios that aren't actually playing out. What had the boy been trying to tell her, she asks. Why build a resort way out there? So it kind of posits these questions. Your imagination is more scary or interesting than perhaps what is the truth. Um, 
In foreshadowing, the chapter ends with an ominous answer to what the injured worker was trying to tell Carter. Raptor. A Latin word. Plunderer or bird of prey. So here's a discussion uh, section. We'll just talk about some of the things that happen in this chapter. Uh, one, Raptor. Um, a pre-Jurassic Park audience, which I mean a pre-1993 audience, has never seen the movie before. And it reads the title of this chapter, The Bite of the Raptor, and there's a statistically insignificant chance that they read that as the, a dinosaur bite. We kind of have to read the title as Crichton intended, which is the pre-phenomenon you know pre -phenomenon of Jurassic Park's success. Crichton clearly intended to share this as an obscure, unrelatable reference as part of his mystery building. It was another breadcrumb he sprinkled along his path to Isla Nublar, raising the suspense and wonder about what might be found on that island once we get there. Today, Raptor is commonly understood as a dinosaur, and specifically a velociraptor. I'd bet, with real poker chips, that the number of people who know that raptor means bird of prey is smaller than the number of people who know that it means velociraptor. To be honest, though I have not surveyed a representative sample group to make that assertion, it's just a hunch. In fact, my Canadian English dictionary under the entry raptor has A, any bird of prey, and B, informal velociraptor. Raptor, literally, is defined, albeit informally, as velociraptor now. But be clear, this was not common usage in 1990. And this segues well into, quote, the bite of the raptor. Raptor bites. The injuries described aren't necessarily the result of any biting. The edge of his wound, the flesh was shredded, the shoulder dislocated, pale bones are exposed, a second slash cut through his heavy muscles of the thigh, deep enough to reveal the pulse of the femoral artery. These are the kicking slashes from a velociraptor. However, the injury has a strange odor, a kind of rotten stench, the smell of death and decay, unlike anything Dr. Carter smelled before, she says on page three. This would be the foul breath of a carnivore, evidence of a bite. Miguel Aragon says the bad smell is one of the reasons he won't work on the patient any longer, that not resuscitating him is, quote, better, and that mouth-to-mouth -mouth will cause the spirit to cross over. So I guess the smell would have come from the bite of the raptor, and so lends some credence to the chapter's title. The mythos of the hoopia is confirmed or strengthened, or at least emboldened, in Manuel Aragon's heart by that bad smell. The result of the bite is what helps the fear take purchase in his soul and causes him to act entirely out of character, against his training, against his Hippocratic oath. The bite of the raptor, it instills irrational fear, terrifies the locals, and evidently killed this man. And that's pretty horrifying. Speaking of the injuries, this leads me to a major conflict I've had since reading this novel more closely. Sick versus injured. Ed Regis says the man is, quote, very sick on page two. Not injured, but sick? That's a strange description. Crichton, the man, the legend, is medically nuanced as an author and schooled as a physician. And not just any physician. He graduated summa cum laude from Harvard College in 1964 and earned his medical doctorate from Harvard Medical School in 1969. He knows about medicine. There is something jarring about calling an injured worker, quote, very sick. That bothers me a lot. Sick is affected with disease. Injured is harmed, damaged, or impaired. This worker didn't contract some disease and fall ill. He was harmed and damaged. It's definitively incorrect. Why would Michael Crichton, M.D., do this. Second, before Carter even observes the injuries, she tells Regis that if the man is very sick, that he'd best take the patient to San Jose, where the capital city would have a very proficient medical team and facilities on page two. But this is despite being just told that Carter can deliver medical care equal to what can be provided at Michael Reese. 
This feels just odd. But perhaps it's so Crichton can ramp up the drama during this thunderstorm. It sounds a bit half-baked, frankly. Half-baked. Speaking of half-baked, there are a few instances in this chapter where Crichton says one thing and then refutes it immediately. First is that this is a great clinic. But as soon as someone comes up, they immediately suggest taking them to a better clinic. Is it a great clinic or not? Second, we're told the Costa Ricans aren't especially superstitious on page 5. And then Manuel Aragon reacts about as radically superstitious as you can, refusing to work, failing to live up to his Hippocratic Oath, disrupting the doctor from providing mouth-to-mouth, and crossing himself over and over. Followed later by Elena Morales scolding Carter for bringing up the hoopia while the mother is about to give birth. Are the Costa Ricans especially superstitious or not? And then again, this is all through the lens of our point-of-view character, Dr. Bobby Carter. Through her eyes, she's operating a little medical clinic, not an emergency room, and likewise, her American upbringing might perceive the Costa Ricans as, quote, not especially superstitious, without really having any idea about what the fishing village's cultural practices really are. So perhaps we can give this a pass, forgiving the misgivings as being the product of Carter being a stranger in a strange land, so to speak. That doesn't forgive the illness versus sickness complaint, though. But just maybe there's more to the distinction than meets the eye. The Art of Deception Ed Regis is a liar. He's obviously lied about the worker's injuries, and even begins by suggesting that he's ill, not injured, misrepresenting the truth as best as he can. He's an agent of disinformation. Regis insists that the worker was caught under a backhoe, and reinforces his testimony with, quote, It was a backhoe, believe me, on page 3. He's hiding something, and Carter can tell. There's something strange on that remote island that's unusually far offshore. She questions how 120 miles offshore seems quite far, reinforcing that there's something suspicious about their operation. I think Regis knows perfectly well that he's got a fatally wounded worker, and knows perfectly well that he's pulled up to a little fishing village clinic, and not into a capital city, San Jose. I think he's lying that they couldn't get the helicopter over the mountains. They just flew the big-bellied Sikorsky 120 miles in under an hour across the ocean. This thing can haul, but they stop short because of the weather? They already flew this far through the weather. I think they stop short because here they can control their circumstances in this little village better than they could control them in San Jose. Here they deal with two people, not an entire hospital and triage. Here they can swipe the Olympus camera and escape into the night. At a major hospital there are more eyes, more questions. Regis the liar has lied again. He's targeted this clinic because he can control the message here. We don't know yet, but he's going to be revealed to be the public relations manager at Jurassic Park, and that would make him in control of controlling the message. And this ties into the pages from earlier in the introduction and the epigraphs, not quite literally, but thematically. Thematically, power and safety are important to the novel, and most specifically, we have characters that are irresponsible with great power. This subversion by Regis, the misrepresentation of the facts, distances him from the truth, and lying is a function of irresponsibility. Here is an agent of Jurassic Park, which is being questioned for its safety and responsibility. And the first scene is someone who wasn't safe at the park and someone not taking responsibility for it. The injury and the lying are both evidence that it's not safe and they're irresponsible with the power they've unleashed. Lying about the injury shows that they're not taking responsibility for their actions. The injury suggests that they're not responsible for the power they've unleashed. And while on the subject of safety, let me consider one last thing that perhaps dates this novel. And I call this part safety dance. You can dance if you want to. Dr. Carter can tell Regis is lying to her. She can read the signals and the injuries, especially the slashes on the man's hands. She's a palm reader, get it? The injuries on the palm tell her the real truth. 
The final observation here is that Carter struggles to figure out what it is that Regis is lying about. She figures that, heck, if engine construction is using unskilled labor from the local population here in Costa Rica, they should be experiencing injuries on site all the time. She says this on page three. Wait, a kid is, quote, almost certainly going to die, and she wonders why this guy's acting so strange? Heck, they should expect injuries like this all the time? To Carter, life-changing, debilitating injuries are just part of the doing business, I guess. Common or not, if a kid was about to die under my supervision, I'd be distressed about it, especially if it were a common event. Your key performance indicators would probably frown against too many deaths from the labor pool, and that'll reflect poorly in my quarterly review. But for real, I, I think it's safe to infer without going back into a time machine, the safety culture was looser in the 80s and 90s, whereas today I know that safety culture is much more rigidly enforced and expected from management and workers alike. I believe all the language used here isn't to comment on safety culture, but rather to add to the mystery building. Surely construction accidents are common. No one would be this concerned about a common occurrence. This injury must be a result of something more mysterious on the mysterious island. And let's leave it on the subject of mystery building. Beyond some of the sticky narrative comments from above, the strange incongruent choices all serve a greater purpose, and that's to being mysterious and intriguing. There's this strange new resort being built, that's unusually far offshore, that may be home to a vampiric spirit called the Raptor or Hoopia, which is so terrifying, even the not especially superstitious Costa Ricans tremor with fear. What are they hiding out there on this island? What is a, a Raptor? So let's leave it there for this episode. I love this book. So in saying goodbye today, I want to give another big, big thanks to my good friend, Adam Leggett. Thank you for joining me. If you want to read along in this book, add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show, or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything that you like about Jurassic Park, you can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line, and we can try and set something up. We'll rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book, or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Park Cast is a part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens Funny Pages, Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, and Second Lapse graphic novelettes, The Infantry, and the worst of them all, The King Street Capers. You can find links to all that baggage in my show notes, or by visiting the schickensblogspot.com, or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers, or me on Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning into the Jurassic Park Cast. Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too. Until next time.